you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. We are going to spend some time this morning on the topic of prophecy. Um, so if you've been with us throughout uh, the spring and summer, you know that, that we just concluded preaching through Paul's uh, first letter to the Thessalonians. And in the last chapter of 1 Thessalonians, we find these three verses as part of Paul's parting words to the church. He says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. And so when we were uh, preparing to conclude preaching through 1 Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, Reed came to me and he said he was just feeling struck by that verse and the call to pray without ceasing. And he thought those would be passages worth spending some more time in, this phrase of do not despise prophecies. And it struck me too. And the reason it struck me particularly is I think over the last five or so years of my life, at least to some degree, I have despised prophecies. Uh, and, and I imagine, knowing uh, this congregation, that, that there are some of you in this room who have also despised prophecies, if unwittingly. Um, we're, we're not a church which has experienced a great deal of, of prophetic words or, or really uh, miraculous movements of the Spirit uh, among us. And, and so while we have always theologically or intellectually at Sojourn embraced the full catalog of the spiritual gifts outlined in the New Testament, um, we have not always practiced them. Um, there's, there's been ways in which the function of our church has been in dissonance with our conviction that, that God moves in these ways. And I know that's been true for me. And, and I really, upon the last couple of weeks in thinking about this, I found it ironic, even a, a bit funny that that this has been true of me because when I was a younger man, I experienced the movement of the Spirit in these sorts of ways. I had prophetic dreams. I, I believed sincerely in the revelatory guiding of God's Spirit for His people to do the work of ministry. And yet, what I think has happened over the past few years is that I have engaged in the sin that Paul directly prohibits, which is to quench the Spirit. Uh, and I, I think that that has happened uh, a bit unconsciously as I have grown in my understanding of the faith, as I've grown in my knowledge of the doctrine of, of the scriptures, as I've grown, grown in theological clarity. Uh, I've largely quenched the spirit through reason and through strategizing, through human wisdom and through knowledge of the Bible. Um, in other words, as I've grown in knowledge and wisdom and experience, I have slowly and gradually and not on purpose stopped relying upon God to guide me in the specific ways that the scripture tells me he can guide me. And this, this doesn't mean that I don't pray and that I don't ask God for help and, and for wisdom. It simply means that I've slowly become more uncomfortable with and less likely to engage with the more revelatory or miraculous gifts of the Spirit. I've been less likely to ask God for a word and instead have just gone to the word. And, and, and there's something in that instinct which is good, and there's something in that instinct which is bad, because Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14.1, he says, Pursue love 
and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So even though I might be uncomfortable with prophecy, I I might be a little afraid of what it means to embrace it, Paul tells me that it is something that I must do, that I must desire it. He, He commands us to pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And so to not desire the spiritual gifts, to not desire that you may prophesy is not just a a way of missing out on what God, what God is doing, the implication is that it is sin. And so if you are like me, where this is a, a bit of an uncomfortable topic, um, let's just lean in together this morning. Let's ask that God would guide us, that he would be graceful to us, and, and that he would illuminate his truth for us, that we might be a church that is faithful. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we need you. Uh, we need your spirit to give us wisdom. We thank you that you have revealed yourself finally and fully in your son and in your scriptures. And that in them, the, full, the fullness of the depths of you and in all the truth that you would have us to believe, the fullness of, of the knowledge that, that it, it takes that we might be faithful to you, that people might come to salvation, has already been fully and clearly revealed to us in your word and in your son. And yet we ask that you would make us open to your spirit moving among us in ways that we aren't quite comfortable with, in ways that we don't quite understand, in order that our faith in Christ and that our knowledge of your word might be bolstered and, and, and reinforced, that the ministry of the church might, might go forth more faithfully, that people might experience your grace more abundantly, that our neighbors might be drawn to you more numerously. Lord, would you use me this morning as an instrument of your truth? Would you allow us to experience the fullness of who you are? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So so the two passages that we've looked at so far this morning, 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 19 through 21, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, um, and, and the passage from chapter 14, really, they've given us this normative principle as Christians. And the normative principle is that prophecy is good and that it should be embraced and desired. This is, this is the normative principle of the New Testament. Prophecy is good and it should be embraced and desired. And this is furthered in, in Paul's other writings in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. He says that we should earnestly desire the higher gifts of the Spirit, of which prophecy is the foremost. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5, Paul writes that he wants all to speak in tongues and he wants all to prophesy. But I think before we can really get into what these gifts mean, we need to address the reality that there are probably some people in this room and there are certainly some people in our tradition and that are deep friends of ours in the faith who are are very uncomfortable with the Scripture's call to desire prophecy, to desire tongues, to desire these revelatory gifts. First, there are people who believe that the revelatory gifts of the Spirit, when I say revelatory gifts, I mean where God has given a revelation of sorts, so prophecy, tongues, words of knowledge, words of of wisdom, these sorts of things, were given to the church. There are people who believe these were given to the church in the foundational period of the church. 
prior to the scriptures being fully written and made available to the church. And so in the apostolic age of the church, God gave these gifts so that his truth might go forth in ways that now, because we have the full canon of scripture, we, we don't need them. And so they have ceased. And there, there's a case to be made for that argument. It's, a, it's an argument that's rooted in a deep care for the church, a deep love for the Bible, but we don't find it convincing for a, a number of reasons. The first is that the apostles clearly encouraged the use of the gifts of the Spirit in the church throughout scriptures, and nowhere do the scriptures tell us with any amount of certainty that these manifestations of the Spirit will cease, and if they do, they give us no idea of when that would be. And so there's just, it's a, it's a, doctrine from reason to believe that the gifts have ceased, but it's not clearly scriptural. The, the second is that there's ample warning throughout the New Testament from the apostles, especially from Paul and Peter, that the church is going to experience and be bombarded with false prophecy. And, and if the gift of prophecy were expected to cease, I would expect that the apostles would say that the church would be bombarded by prophecy, all of which is false, but they don't say that. They delineate false prophecy from true prophecy, and so the expectation is that there's some true prophecy that will be in the life of the church, and the, the final reason is that in Acts chapter 2, Peter makes this proclamation after the Spirit has been poured out at Pentecost, the Christians are dwelled with the Holy Spirit for the first time, and he proclaims that now all sorts of people will prophesy, young people, old people, men, women, rich people, poor people, and he says in these last days, which we interpret to be the last days from the giving of the Spirit to the day in which Christ would return. He doesn't just say in the next 50 years or so this will happen. It's an expectation that this will be an ongoing reality in the church. And so in our definition of prophecy as a common spiritual gift in the church, what we want to do is make clear that that the Biblical understanding of prophecy does not allow for anything contradictory or additional to be added to the general, sufficient, and final word of God in the Bible. And so what I mean by that is that there's no more revelation coming for God's people about how people might be saved. The final words on redemption and doctrine have been written in the scriptures. There's no new doctrine coming to the church. New doctrine is called false doctrine. New revelation is called false prophecy. But that does not mean there is not a a spirit of prophecy in which God speaks through his people based upon the revelations he's already given and the doctrines he's firmly established in, in the scriptures. The, the view that prophecy and tongues have ceased is, is called cessationism. And, and yet, if you were to speak with many cessationists, especially evangelical cessationists, they would say, well, we believe that the Spirit is at work in the church, and we even believe that the Spirit can, can do things like prompt believers or, or nudge believers or urge believers towards specific behaviors or proclamation or, or prayer. And, and so... So in that, they're essentially saying, many of our brothers and sisters who would say that the gift of prophecy has ceased, they're they're essentially saying, we believe similar things about prophecy, you believe, but we're not going to call it prophecy. Because we we think that that leaves an open door to 
to the sufficiency of Scripture being called into question. And there's a fair argument to be made there. I would argue that the sufficiency of Scripture demands that we pursue prophecy, and so to not pursue prophecy is actually to not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, but that's another conversation for another day. Um, but, but in that, there's probably some people in this room who, who would say intellectually, I, I believe that God can give a prophetic word to somebody. I believe that he can work in this way. But if you're honest with yourself, you, you don't actually want it to happen around you, right? Like you're fine with hearing a story about brothers and sisters on the mission field being given dreams and visions and, and, and all sorts of things, but you don't really want that to happen in your neighborhood parish, right? Like there's some people here who, who probably feel that way. Like I believe it can happen. I'm just not sure I want it to. And, and I want you to know, like I, I see you. I understand that. I understand the, the discomfort when we talk about God moving in these sorts of ways, but the scriptures seem to be clear on it. And so let's look at them with an open heart and an open mind. Uh, if we're to desire and not despise prophecies, let's begin by seeking to define that word, prophecy. And we're going we're gonna to give a, a basic definition that I totally ripped off from another theologian. And then we're going to look at the way that prophecy worked in the Old Testament prior to the coming of Christ, the way prophecy worked in the New Testament, so that we can draw from a definition and from history implications as to what we might expect and practice. And so the definition that we'll use is that prophecy is the human report of a divine revelation. Prophecy is the human report of a divine revelation. It's a spontaneous revelation from God given to someone or a group of people for the purposes of God's plan of redemption or building up his church. And, and so how does that work out in the Old Testament? Well, in the Old Testament, prophecy was almost exclusively a gift given to people who were called into this specific office of being a prophet. God called people, the word of the Lord came to people, both men and women, and this became a vocation of sorts in which prophets served as the mouthpiece of God to God's people. And so the prophets were called to speak the word of God to the people of God. They advised kings and rulers, and they called wayward communities to repent and return to the Lord. This is kind of the function of prophets in the Old Testament. Another function of the prophets in the Old Testament is that they wrote the scriptures. Um, and, and we see this in the New Testament. New Testament authors almost exclusively refer to the Old Testament scriptures as the prophets because their understanding was that's the revelation of God given to his people written down. And so to write scripture is prophetic. Um, Furthermore, the office of prophet in the Old Testament was associated with working of miracles, specifically in Moses and Elijah, the two greatest prophets in the history of Israel. These were men who certainly spoke the word of God to the people of God, but they were also endowed with power of the Spirit to work miracles on behalf of God. And so, so even though there was the working of miracles and there was the writing of Scripture in this prophetic office, Ultimately, the office of prophet in the Old Covenant was an office of proclamation, proclaiming the goodness and holiness of God, proclaiming the covenant obligations of God's people, denouncing injustice and idolatry and empty ritualism. Like those are kind of the big three things that prophets talk about, injustice, idolatry, and empty ritualism. They called Israel to repentance in light of these things, and they warned of God's judgment. 
And so when we get to the New Testament, the office of prophet sort of shifts, but, but first there are some major figures who fill roles that look a lot more like Old Testament prophet office roles. The, the most obvious is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the last Old Covenant prophet. He has come to the people of Israel to tell them of the coming of God's judgment and redemption in the Messiah for whom he is preparing the way. And so John the Baptist is the final Old Testament prophet. He just happens to be recorded in the pages of the New Testament. And then Jesus is clearly a prophet, much more than a prophet, but he serves as the mouthpiece of God. He calls people to repentance. He proclaims the the coming of God's judgment. He proclaims the coming of God's grace, the coming of the kingdom. All of these things are prophetic. And then the apostles, particularly Peter and Paul, have offices much like that of Old Testament prophets. And though, though it's, it's different, there is a similarity in which they are speaking the word of God to a people of God, especially in the midst of judgment and transition, and they are endowed with power to work miracles. I mean, they're healing people, raising the dead, doing all of these things. And, and so it's much like the ministry of the prophets. But where things change in the New Testament is we're introduced to another way in which prophecy is experienced among the covenant people, and it's only possible for it to be experienced in the way that it is in the New Covenant because of the democratization of the Holy Spirit. And I I say the democratization of the Holy Spirit because it means that that at Pentecost, when God poured out his Spirit on his people, for the first time in the history of God's people, all of his people were indwelled with the fullness of his presence and empowered with the fullness of his presence. And so before the Holy Spirit would visit himself upon specific people like prophets or kings or judges to do certain works in the history of redemption, but overall the people of God used to experience the Spirit primarily and almost exclusively in temple worship. And now the people of God have become the temple of God. And as Peter says, this is a big deal as it relates to prophecy. So in Acts 2, he says, in the last days, it shall be, quoting the prophet Joel, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So now the, the gift of prophecy is, is no longer for select officers in the covenant people. It is a, a gift that is available to any and all of God's children simply because they have the Spirit of God among them. This doesn't mean that all will prophesy, but it does mean that all can prophesy within the covenant community. Um, Paul speaks of the spiritual gifts and prophecy uh, more specifically in 1 Corinthians. He, he says, th- this is a passage Jordan read, he says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Hear that. That's the definition of the spiritual gifts. Manifestations of the Spirit given by God for the common good. That's what a spiritual gift is. It's when God manifests his Spirit in the life of a believer for the common good of the church. 
For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And so the gift of the gifts of the Spirit, the gift of prophecy is something that God sovereignly ordains and wills to give to a person at a given time. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, on the one hand, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. And so prophecy is a benefit to the church because prophecy is what God uses in part to build up, to encourage, and to console. But prophecy is not only a benefit to the church. Unlike some spiritual gifts, which are only a benefit to the church, Prophecy is not. He goes on in 14, 24 through 25. He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And so prophecy is a benefit to unbelievers. It is a gift that is both internal and evangelical in nature as it can be used to reveal the secrets of the heart of an unbeliever so that their need for God and the beauty of God and the grace of God would be made clear to them. So prophecy is the human report of divine revelation. It's good for the church and it's good for those outside the church, but these sorts of textbook definitions of prophecy are probably not as helpful as practical examples of ways that that prophecy is revealed in the New Testament. And so I'm going to walk through every example that I could find in the New Testament of prophecy very briefly so that we can see that it's not just a uniform manifestation of the Spirit, that these prophetic, the prophetic gift is varied in how it is revealed. And so in Acts 9, we learn that that prophecy can be knowledge about somebody or something that wouldn't be known apart from the Spirit revealing it. So in Acts 9, uh, a man named Ananias is given a vision by God to greet Saul, who has recently been converted, but Ananias doesn't know this, and Saul's been ravaging the church. He's been overseeing the killing of Christians. And so God calls Ananias. He says, go and greet this Saul. And Ananias is like, I don't know if you know God, but that's a bad dude. And Saul's like, well, and God's like, well, actually, things have changed. You need to go greet him. And so he, he does this. Um, I've experienced uh, this sort of manifestation in prophecy through, through a dream. And so when I was in college, um, I had a dear friend who was kind of walking in a wayward way, and and me and his friends and family were very worried about him. And I had a dream one night that I was sitting with his family, and they were crying, and they were saying, Cole, it's about your friend. I won't say his name, but they kept saying, it's worse than we thought. It's worse than we thought. I woke up that morning, I was walking to class, and the first thing really that happened to me that day is I got a call from his brother, and the first words that he said were, Cole, it's about so-and-so, and it's worse than we thought. 
And I believe God gave me this dream so that I was spiritually, emotionally, and mentally prepared for the work of ministry that he was going to call me to do in the life of my friend and his family. We see this sort of knowledge coming to Jesus in John chapter 4 when he tells the woman of Samaria all, all about her marital history when there's no other way he would have known it. And her response is, you must be a prophet, right? And so we see prophecy revealed in the foretelling of future events. This is the way that most of us probably think about prophecy. It's the way that colloquially we talk about prophesying is that it's fortune telling. Um, that's not the most common way that prophecy is revealed in the scriptures, but it is a way. And so in Acts 11, a man named Agabus has a, a vision of this famine that's gonna come to a, a large region. And, and he tells people, God has given me this word of a famine that's coming. And th the church responds by preparing to make sure that, that these Christians in this region where there will be no food will be cared for. Um, prophecy can involve a call to a specific work of ministry. So in Acts 13, a group of Christians are praying and singing and and the Spirit reveals to them that they need to set Paul and Barnabas aside to go on a, a, essentially a long-term mission trip. And so, so the Spirit reveals you need to set Paul and Barnabas aside for this. That's a prophetic revelation. Um, the prophecy can be revealed as, as we are made known, um, as the prayers and pleas of other Christians are made known to us. So maybe God might reveal to you what a brother or sister is praying or, or hoping for so that you might intervene. We see this in Acts chapter 16. Paul is given a vision of a Macedonian man who is pleading that Paul might come to them and share the gospel with them. And so Paul goes to Macedonia and shares the gospel. Um, prophecy can be a warning about future suffering. And now, hear this, it's not necessarily a warning about future suffering so that that suffering will be prevented or averted, but so that it can be endured with faith. We see this in Acts chapter 20 and 21. There are multiple groups of Christians who are given visions about Paul going to Jerusalem. Whereas earlier in Acts, Paul has set his heart to go to Jerusalem. And then these Christians are getting visions about Paul going to Jerusalem. And all of the things they're seeing are bad. And so they warn Paul, don't go. They beg Paul not to go. And he's basically saying, no, you're misinterpreting that prophecy. I'm going to go and I'm going to suffer. And so that, there's also a note to be made there that the revelation of God is always infallible. Our interpretation of the revelation of God is not infallible. Right, We have the clear, concrete word of the Lord in Scripture, and I am going to hopefully, by God's grace, preach it for my whole life, and sometimes I'll get it wrong. And it's clear. It's concrete. So how much more are, are we going to, at times, misinterpret a prophetic word that comes? We see it happen in the Scriptures, and that is not a warning against exercising this gift. It's just a sobering reality that sometimes we'll, we'll see something, we'll hear something, we'll receive something from the Lord, and we will not know what to do with it, and we will maybe do the wrong thing with it. So it's, there's a discipline and a wisdom and a knowledge that we grow in. Prophecy is revealed in dreams, um, we, we see this throughout the Old Testament, Joseph in particular, he has all these prophetic dreams. In Acts 10, um, this happens with Peter. He has a dream where God tells him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And it's the beginning of this journey for the apostles on deciding that, that the food laws, the dietary restriction of the old covenant no longer apply to a new covenant community, that they have been fulfilled in Christ, that, that all food is now lawful. 
Prophecy can, can come through intercession. We've sort of talked about this with the Macedonian man, but, but I've known many Christians who have, who have felt that God has called them supernaturally and in a revelatory way to pray for specific things or specific people without necessarily having been asked to. I, I know people that have been woken up in the middle of the night and God has put a burden on their heart to pray for someone or something. And so this is a, a prophetic sort of revelation. Um, it's also the, the most low-risk way of engaging with prophecy. If you feel like you should pray for something, you can just do it. You know, you don't, like, you can, that's not a spirit that you need to test as, as strictly as, as other ways of prophecy. Um, another way that we can understand prophecy is, is in concert with the ministry of preaching and teaching. And I think this is the most common way in which Christians experience the prophetic gift as the Spirit speaks through pastors and teachers during sermons. Um, the Spirit-illuminated application of scriptural truths is undoubtedly in line with the biblical understanding of the prophetic gifts. Now, this isn't to say that every time a pastor teaches a, a passage from the Bible that he's prophesying or that God is giving him revelatory words to speak to his people, but that does happen from time to time when a preacher is preaching, and God will give him words spontaneously to give to his people, or even in preparation to give to his people, that there's a prophetic nature to that. This is, uh, the Puritans went so far as to call the ministry of preaching prophesying. Puritans just wholesale called preaching prophesying for this reason. Um, it's also the way that I think most cessationists experience the gift of prophecy, because they, they, will, uh, they will not even know it's happening. And God will still use it among them. Um, when, when God gives a pastor the ability to apply the word of God to the people of God in a specific moment or situation, it, it, it's not always prophecy, but it's at least the sort of thing that's living on the same street as prophecy. Um, the, uh, other ways in which prophecy can, can be used and experienced, sometimes God will raise up leaders or a specific group or a specific person to do a particular work of prophetic ministry as it relates to the culture or institutions of power. And so sometimes God will raise up somebody to speak truth to power, to, to proclaim the warning of God's judgment, to call for repentance to a culture at large. Now, sometimes we see this, and it's clearly not prophetic ministry, but sometimes this has happened in the life of the church. Uh, furthermore, the church collectively has a prophetic role in society. It is the job of the church to point out sin, to warn of God's judgment, to proclaim the free grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ, to preach the truth of God's word to the world around us, to invite people to belong to the kingdom of God, to, to make the abundance of grace known to our fellow neighbors and countrymen. Really, the church as the body of Christ is the prophet of God among the earth. It is our collective duty to prophesy. So, so prophecy can be used in all of these ways. And so why should we desire it? And we've established that we should desire it because the Bible commands us to. And for some of us, that's a totally satisfactory reason. Um, but what, what would actually tug at our hearts? What would actually make the, the pursuit of this sort of gift desirable? Um, well, Maybe don't think of it so much as we are commanded to, although we are. Think about the reality that we are graciously invited 
to pursue it. That God, in his infinite power, wisdom, sovereignty, and grace, has said, I might make known to you something that you can give to somebody else for the purpose of building them up, encouraging them, consoling them. I might use you in that sort of way. That's a gracious invitation. Prophecy is loving. Prophecy builds up. It encourages. It consoles Christian brothers and sisters, and it illuminates the truth about God and a need for God to unbelievers. The ministry of prophecy and all spiritual gifts is fundamentally a ministry of love. That's why in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul lays out all the gifts of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 13, he gives this huge discourse on how love is the ruling principle, not the gifts of the Spirit. And then he goes back in chapter 14 and says, Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So to desire the spiritual gifts is a loving pursuit. Prophecy can make the church more holy. It, it, it can allow God to, to speak to us and through us and, and allow us to experience the joy of the Lord, intimacy with him, to seek his face in a way that maybe some of us haven't yet done. And I, I think maybe the most exciting thing that we should consider is that prophecy might lead to revival. It might lead to people getting saved. It might lead to the, the kingdom going forth. That is the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit, that the church might be enlivened by the grace of God to do the work of God. And, and so these are the reasons for desiring prophecy. But, but really, there's one fundamental reason that I think we should consider it's that at the center of prophecy and all of the revelation of God is the truth about Jesus. When God gives his people dreams, visions, words of knowledge, words of encouragement, words of wisdom, he does so to the end that Jesus Christ is exalted, believed upon, and worshipped. That's the only reason that anybody would prophesy is to make much of Jesus. God gives words to men and women so that Jesus Christ and his gospel are proclaimed in all the earth. Every true prophecy is about Christ, whether explicitly or implicitly. If you come across a prophecy that has nothing to do with Christ, you have come across false prophecy. Every true prophecy points toward the Grace of God found in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It points to the life that is found in union with God. It points to the power that's found in yielding humbly to the kingship of God. John concludes after a conversation, a prophetic conversation with an angel in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. He says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy is about Jesus. It's about the story of Jesus. It's about the gospel of Jesus. It's about the ministry of Jesus. And it's for the church of Jesus. So we should desire prophecy because we desire Jesus. We should desire it because we desire to know him, to proclaim him, to glorify him, to be found in him, and for others to be changed by him. So where do we begin? Where do we begin? Begin with prayer and with the word. Um, if you want to begin, the secondary work of prophecy is testing the spirits. And if you want to be able to do that, you need to know the word. Um, and if you want to experience God in any intimate or revelatory way, you need to be with him. Um, prophecies do not come to people who are not spending time with the Lord. Uh, it's just, it's not something we see in scripture. 
It is for those who are waiting on him, pursuing him, praying to him, worshiping him, steeping themselves in his word and his truth, meditating on his promises. So begin there. The second thing that I would encourage you to do is be open to God responding to your prayer when you ask him to give you gifts. Be open to him actually doing it. When you feel that the Spirit is prompting you to pray for someone, pray for them. When you feel the Spirit is giving you a vision, test it. When If you feel the Spirit has given you a word for somebody or for the church, come talk to a pastor and say, I I feel like this is something that's going on. I don't really know what to do with it. I want to test it. We're we're called to test these things. So so as you encourage yourself and and others to pursue these things, do so in the context of the church. Do so uh, under the leadership of the elders. Do so under submission to the word. Um. But when it comes to movements of God among us, especially something that we've been talking about and praying for for years, which is revival, revival in our neighborhood and in our city, um, what we need is the Spirit to work in power. Um, Tim Keller, who was a Presbyterian, um, which meant whether he was fully or not, he was at least bound to some uh, submission to the doctrine of cessationism. Tim Keller said, if you want revival, you have to be open to God's working in ways you don't understand. If you want revival, you have to be open to God doing things that are more marvelous than what you could do on your own. You have to be open to it. And so if we want revival, we have to be open to God doing things that maybe right now we're a little uncomfortable with and a little afraid of. Things that we can't fully explain, things that we don't fully understand, things that are way out of our control. But if we're not open to that, if we're afraid of that, we're probably not going to see revival. And, and, as, and if we're afraid of that, we will miss out on the fullness of what God has for us in his word and in his spirit. And so as we close, I want you to imagine a reality in which we as a church hold fast to the word commit ourselves to Christian living in holiness, commit ourselves to faithfulness in the context of community, brotherly love and mutuality, and openly pursue and beg God to move in power through spiritual gifts. It might make us uncomfortable at first. It might make us nervous. We might get it wrong at times, and all of that is normal. The thing that, if you read the scriptures, what you'll see is that when people encounter the power of God, the first thing they are is scared. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the Lord. The power of God is scary. But I would tell you that what is scarier than the power of God is the absence of his power. And so let's pray that his power would be at work among us, in us, and that he would use us for the purpose of building one another up, encouraging one another, consoling one another, and preaching truth to those in need of it.